Uh, Kate. Emily. How many Reese's peanut butter Christmas trees have you eaten this Christmas season? Well, I need to tell you that I bought I bought Christmas tree Reese's before Halloween. And I I had my reasons why, but I'm ultimately disappointed that they were available to me. <laughs> so um, it's a trick question to ask me that because I have been eating them since before October 31st. Hmm. And it is now the middle of December. So we got like six so weeks of we plus six weeks of I'm Christmas not trees. going to tell you how many. Um, I will say that as a fun fact, I this isn't today. We are going to be releasing a panel from season eleven called "The Truth About True Crime" on TV. We we don't always say that <laughs> dot obviously. dot dot on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I this is not a this is not a crime that I need to um report, but. I have had to have my husband hide chocolate from me and create a barrier of entry so that I don't know where it is. And I have to request a piece of chocolate. And he has to give it to me. There's no withholding. But I have to reach a point where I have to request it. Fun fact is I rarely ask for a second one. Like that's a big enough Mm -hmm. hurdle to get over that it helps slow down my consumption of said Reese's Christmas trees. Bad news is he also likes Reese's Christmas trees. And therefore, if I ask him for one, sometimes he grabs two, one for himself, without asking for permission. Like, it's a communal bag of chocolate. No, you purchased it for yourself. You were just trying to stop yourself from eating it all at once. Curb the speed at which I would eat them. Yes. Which makes total sense to me. Yeah. And anyway. There got to be a discussion about the last two, and he grabbed – I asked for one, and I said, how many are left? And he goes, well, none, because I grabbed the last one, and I was not an appropriate answer. And so it's not quite a crime. Wait, I <laughs> – because I may have heard portion of the story before, I feel like you need to complete the story of what happened with the final one. Oh, well, I ate it. <laughs> <laughs> because someone – your husband okay. yes. left it on the counter. Yes. Well, he pulled them both out and I made it. He claimed that he was going to eat the last one. And I said, well, I, you didn't ask. I'm, I am happy to share sometimes, but the last one seems like not the one to share. And he left it on the counter. I ate mine. He, It had been over an hour. <laughs> it's a long time for <laughs> you to just be sitting on the counter. And when he went to the bathroom, I ate it. <laughs> And when he came back, he said, where is it? And I admitted that I ate it, but I didn't create the crime. It was originally my tree. I think, was this also the day that you also ate the rest of the burrito that you had promised no, that you was could a have? Different, that was a different day. And that was my fault. I had a burrito. I didn't finish it. I told him that the next day he could have it. He didn't eat it for breakfast or lunch. And he went out with a friend, and I thought maybe he would have eaten while he was out. And I ate the rest of the burrito that I did say was his. And when he got back, he looked in the fridge and to his credit said, I really do love you. And I knew exactly. I was like, oh, no, you're looking for the burrito, aren't you? <laughs> he was like, well, you said it was mine. <laughs> and I did have to apologize and offer to go to Whataburger for him because that's the closest place. And... To his credit, uh, he took me up on my offer to make him a mac- box of macaroni and cheese. And and we're, our marriage is fine, guys. But I think 
you know, having lived with people on and off throughout my life, that there's a huge thing in when you're coming home. Yes. And, and you're you know, craving something and you're like, I want this specific thing. And you get there and someone else has eaten oh, I the know. last of this, it without telling you. Yes. You know, if someone's going to eat the last of something, them. they, you, it's okay. Yeah. The, it, the, most I, of the time, the it's I, okay. The irony of this is I had to teach him this lesson and <laughs> I was the one that went back on it. Now, I don't want this burrito situation, which was my fault, to overshadow the, <laughs> the, the agreement that we have about the chocolate. Also true. And the problem is he is not a sweets person with the exception of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. He doesn't understand that the trees and the pumpkins are better oh, yeah, that's, than the cups. Well, that's he, a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... So I think it's unfair that when I request my chocolate, that every once in a while he's like, oh, I'll grab one too. (laughs) Unacceptable. Happy to share a guy, but (laughs) also real fast and then we can move on. But I also think what's funny about this is as you're telling me this story, part of the story was every so often as the bag is hidden, which... (laughs) I'm really interested where he hides it in your place. I don't um, go looking for it. Which is part of what you have to yes. do because you could probably find it find it if you really tried. But part of the thought process that you have is every so often he needs to give you updates for how many are Correct. left so that you know, like, are we running towards the end? Where are we? I want to parcel them out. I never want to ask for one and him be like, it's gone. So the fact that it was only you asking yeah, how many are left. He's like, well, these two that even let you know. I mean, you could have eaten one. He could have eaten one. And then you could have asked for another one and they would have been gone, it which would, to me, that's the crime. Uh, yeah. It would have been a serious problem. We had a moderate problem that I took into my own hands. Um, but we would have had a serious problem if I had asked for them and they weren't there. So, you know, all of this is brought to you by a very light, thread to today's panel but also that we're in the middle of holiday season and holiday candy is one of my favorite things and i will have more yep i love that um speaking about today's panel yep i this was one of the panels that i believe you and jen came up with the topic of that sounds right and had a short list of people you wanted on it that sounds correct and needed some other possibilities oh and you're coming and, to credit yourself yes and my favorite part <laughs> of panels like this are when i just get to look through a mass panelist list and do deep dives on them and be like look yeah this person has a true crime yes. credit i will say before you say we can identify which one is which is that we did come up with this panel at one point we had a lot of people especially right now like in terms of TV shows that are based on real occurrences and true crimes. And the number one, especially in June when this panel happened, the number one panelist show that we wanted represented was The Staircase and Maggie Cohn being the showrunner. Like, I think the fact that The Staircase was, is some people, you know, it's probably debatable, but some people say is sort of the first true crime docuseries that a lot of people fell in love yep. with and then Netflix did a little bit of extra to then have it be an HBO series. Mm-hmm. HBO, right? Not HBO Max. HBO. Okay. HBO Max. is an HBO Max series. You know what, guys? I know the difference. Um, is I will say as somebody who was not a super fan of the docuseries but had seen it, thought it was one of the most creative ways to approach a true crime show in the sense that 
this is not a spoiler, but they show you like three different alternatives of what maybe happened. And they did it in such a unique way and really built on the show. And I just thought it was really cool. And I thought it was really cool that she came. It was her first time in Austin, I do believe. Um, Which I also love when that happens. I know. So she was awesome. I would like her to come back, please. And second person on this panel is who you are referencing from your mass list because we at that point were like, well, I guess we can just do a conversation about the staircase because we which would have still been would have been great, but um, Ingrid Escajeda, yep, um, who is one of the beautiful Justified writers. We had this. We also fell in love with. Oh my gosh! So we have this beautiful group of Justified writers that were coming in for their creatives reunion and wanting to use all of them as much as possible. When I saw that she had the show still to come out, but they had filmed mm-hmm. and at least Sophia Vergara is in it. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, called Griselda, I was like, I feel that she is in this show enough, like that they've done enough filming, yeah. writing, creating that she could talk and do a little promo on it. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing because we rarely it also shows how sometimes writers probably go rogue because my guess is she didn't ask for permission to talk about the show. No, no. I also don't think she should have to talk about uh, ask for permission, but how early she was talking about it. So this is very cool in the fact that it's still not out, no release date, that this conversation today that we are releasing uh, has The Staircase, which you can go watch the docuseries and the scripted show, and then Griselda, which you can go li- listen to what Ingrid has to say. Go read about the new tr- about the true crime, and then ask Netflix when it's coming out. <laughs> um, I do want to say this is moderated by one of our dear friends and favorite people, Emily Moss Wilson, who is a director and- who directs Christmas movies that oh, are out now. Look at that, you guys! She put a button on it. Yep. Enjoy. Full Listen circle. to this, then do all the other things I said, and then go watch Emos's any number of her Christmas movies. Just put Emily Moss Wilson into IMDb, and like. 10 are going to come up and you're not going to be disappointed. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce these ladies. Well, actually, I'll just let you guys introduce yourselves. Just um, I'm Maggie Cohn and I am the uh, showrunner writer of The Staircase. I am Ingrid Escajeda, and I am showrunner writer of a show called Griselda that should be on Netflix, hopefully spring of next year, but we're not quite sure yet. So don't quote me on that. (laughs) But it will be coming to Netflix. Um, So I have this note card, but it's going to be useless. Because I just want to talk to these guys and just have a conversation. Um, So obviously we're here to talk true crime, the truth about adapting true crime, uh, but it's such a bigger conversation. Um, I guess where I want to start is um, just everyone's obsession with the genre in general. Um, Are you guys fans of true crime? And if so, what are some of your favorites? Or uh, what do you find yourself drawn to in the genre and watching it? Like, why do you like watching it? Um, I I am a fan of the genre, which is why I was so interested in working on The Staircase because it was an opportunity to to explore the genre further um, and kind of broaden perhaps how we define it and how we start looking at true crime, um, which is kind of embracing the idea that there's multiple perspectives and there isn't necessarily a single truth and that in trying to understand an event, because definitely in, in 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 the case of The Staircase, 
it's not necessarily a crime, and that's actually part of the exploration of um, what what happened that night. Um, but it's the idea that you can have multiple perspectives on the same event, and that pieces of evidence or things that we consider to be objective are actually always going to be subjective to some point because it's actually your backstory that you're bringing to how you view something that shapes the idea of it and defines it. And so for me, I, I'm a fan of true crime, but I've always thought more about the people who are experiencing it and kind of that reality and then the idea of what it is to kind of recreate it and um, uh, think about it further in a different piece of media. Uh, I am as well. I would say my favorite is the first 48. I don't know if any of you watch that. Um, I, I am, but I, I the, the thing for me about Griselda was, was less about my love of true crime and more about the criminal itself. There, there's a, been a ton of books written about her and legends and whatnot, but you know, this all happened with her in the 70s and 80s, and all of those books were written by men. So for me, it was really interesting to, and, and she objectively did some horrific, horrific things, 100%. But I couldn't help but wonder when I approached this that you know a lot of these, again, horrific things, but a lot of the way that they were spun, I wanted to look at why. You know, why were they spun that way? It was it, you know, she was very enmeshed, obviously, in the machismo culture and drugs in the 70s, cocaine cowboys. And it was like, well, did these things really happen that way? Or was it more about the fact that if she bested one of these guys, do they then spin it into she's almost this mythical figure in an attempt to make themselves look better, if that makes sense? Um, so that was that was one of the big things that, that drew me to this to this project, I have to say. So to that point, just with the amount of things that are the pre-existing, uh, you know, writings or, you know, documentation that exists. I mean, obviously you had the documentary, The Staircase. Was there anything previous to that? Like any big were there, were there was there any book or anything? I mean, there, we we had multiple sources, but yeah, right. prior, I think the staircase, um, the documentary team followed them during the trial, mm -hmm. and it's because they had already they had experience making documentaries about um, you know about trials because they uh, they made Murder on a Sunday Morning, which went on to win the Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, so the staircase documentary was the I think the first piece of media about that created about that um and then in addition to that it was kind of the first documentary or one of the first documentaries that approached true crime with an episodic format because it was a, such a long documentary but they then decided to create it as episodes of tv and i saw it first on the sundance channel um but yeah our, our sources we had a variety of sources and what's and having researched many, um, you know, non or you know, real life events, what's really interesting to me, and I don't know if you found this, is that you have sources that are vetted, and they're primary sources, and they contradict one another. Yes. Absolutely. And and it's not that one of them isn't true; it's that there is this liminal space of that reality is in the eye of the beholder, as is history, and that I think true crime falls into that kind of philosophy. Hundred percent. Well, there's a lot of studies that have been done about people's memories mm -hmm. and eyewitness accounts and how accurate that is and how valid some of that is and how you can truly, like, 
believe you really did see something and it can come up on, you know, lie detectors or in your body physiology in one way. Mm -hmm. um, so to the books that were written uh, about Griselda, which you'd spoken to and been written by men, um, what was, like, where did you start with the information gathering? And I guess maybe where where where's our going to be our point of entry for this series that is has so much to pull from? Yeah, I, I mean, with us, and I think this is out in the trades, hopefully already. <laughs> that uh, we're focusing on when she was in Miami, okay. um, and that because that was just a, the, the the most interesting place to start for us. Um, it was tough. I'll tell you, the amount of, I, I, I had come into this project a little bit later, and it's the producers who did Narcos. They'd been working on it for ages, and I, I co-wrote uh, and produced this with a, a guy by the name of Doug Miro, who was one of the Narcos creators, and he was obsessed with Griselda. He knew, I mean, it was, I can't even tell you, like it was, we'd be, the two of us, we would be breaking the pilot, and he was phenomenal in that I would be like, okay, narratively, we need something like this, X, here. What can we pull from history? And he'd be like, oh, this, or that. Like, and it was, it was just, just encyclopedic. Like, incredibly encyclopedic. Wow. It was really, really helpful. I, I Truthfully, I don't know if I could have done that without him. Did you have a person that was like, a, I mean, obviously there were tons of research was done, but like, did you have that guy or gal? Yeah, we we had a, a Michael Matthews who was a researcher, and then after when we started production, Josh Bressler became that. Um, but it was essentially like a huge Dropbox folder that all of our department heads had access to and could go into and see what we were we've been you know exposed to. Um, yeah, I mean, so research is key, but it's also kind of to what extent it serves the narrative. And I think what was interesting with the staircase is that we got to kind of show that process with the documentary team. And then because we were able to kind of use that as a visual and narrative device, we were then kind of su suggesting, hopefully, rather explicitly that if this is what a, a group of creatives does with the project, then imagine what we've done with it. Mm -hmm. And it is about encouraging critical thinking about these things and thinking, okay, what, what are the perspectives and why would someone have that bias and bring in a bias, like Absolutely. you were saying earlier about how they're approaching Griselda. It's like, why would they think that about her? And it's, well, is it to preserve masculinity? It, you know, Or her, himself, or her herself, yeah. being the woman in a man's world the way she was. Did she latch on? Because there were a lot of you know, murders and whatnot that were unsolved. So is it that she latched onto a couple of these things and said, oh yeah, I'm responsible for X, Y, and Z. I mean, she definitely was responsible for some <laughs> insane things, but I get it. Like, I mean, if I'm, I'm, I'm up against what she was up against, I can't even fathom being in that world the way she, the way she was. Yeah, the scarier she oh, presented, then it's like, like her bravado absolutely. grows or whatever. Mm -hmm. Going to sort of the, uh, I guess, subjects at the center of these, uh, these two shows, Griselda is no longer alive. No. Um, it, does it, ch and, and Michael's family obviously is, I mean, I'm sure she has extended family. What is sort of the sensitivity with which you have to deal with the either the people or their family members or their estates or, uh, you know, there's, I mean, you guys will tell me, but in bringing something like this to life and how do you navigate that? I mean, in our case, it was a little bit, it was 
somewhat easy because she's such a public figure and there was so much source material about her that we could, you know, we could, there was a lot for us to draw from. Um, and truthfully, and I sound like a horrible person by saying this, but a lot of the people that we were dealing with are no longer alive. So we didn't have to, you know, we, we didn't have to worry about, um, and, but, but at the same time, we did stick to, it's not like we ever said somebody killed somebody that, you know, that, that they didn't, for example. We just couldn't. Um, Netflix legal was, was on top of us, but in, they were extremely helpful, I will say this much. Mm -hmm. They were never, the team that we worked with was never like, oh, you can't do this or you can't do this, but they were very wary of, well, let's make sure we have the documentation. You know, we had um, Revi, one of our, one of her cohorts, we had a, I don't even know how many pages, like a 300 page, um, what do they call them? They, no, it was it when he was in his trial. Oh, the the trans it was a transcript, but there was something else too. But it was we had that to pull from for like, it was his deposition. Thank you. It's been a long week. We all crime, know true yes, crime. Exactly. Just we say had, a legal word and it'll exactly. It was Reeve's deposition that we had a lot to draw from and could say, oh well, you know, Reeve said she did this or whether or not she did. Um, but yeah. What about you? I mean, I think it's just approaching it with as much sensitivity as you can, but also in this case, again, it was a, 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 a season of TV about the idea that truth is ambiguous. So there is a level of, like, again, encouraging critical thinking about whenever anyone says this is real life, like to what extent we can actually duplicate that, I think is very questionable. Um, even when we, ha and you know, you have fake news and deep fakes and it's, it's, I think in this day and age, it's like it's now more than ever, we need to have that distance between the media we're consuming and think why am I, why am I receiving it in this manner and why is somebody creating it in this way? And let's and and be okay with that ambiguity, um, which it, so I guess you know it's just approaching something with respect and sensitivity, and also the knowledge that to replicate something is impossible. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, that's how we ended up approaching it. And I would say another thing we did with Griselda too is we we latched onto some of the pictures that we we had, and especially the pictures of her with her sons, mm -hmm. and that was something we you know we knew we had to balance these horrible, horrible events that, that took place. But at the same time, we do know she was abused by her husband. We do know and we knew that she loved her sons. So we tried to balance the sensitivity, I guess, by leaning into a lot of that. The human element. The human element yeah. that, you know, regardless of what she did, she she was still, she was a loving mother and 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 someone who went through a horrific, horrific upbringing. You know, she grew up in the, in Colombia during La Violencia. So it was people were shot in the streets when she was growing up and growing up poor. And there is, you know, she worked as a prostitute and some awful things happened with her mother. I mean, it was, again, whether or not these are all true, yeah. it was stuff that, that, at least for me, I really, really wanted to lean into that and, and, and look at why someone becomes, but at the same time, and this was a, a line in the show that was very important to me because we have a cop character who's also uh, a woman in a man's world. So we have that sort of balance too. It's to show who, not all battered women become sociopaths. Mm. 
Like that was right. the big thing right. for me. And so that was with our cop character, June. She she is that example. I mean, she she didn't wasn't a battered woman and whatnot, but but she gives voice to that. That it's just like you can't always yes, upbringing and, and, and horrible experiences can lead to trauma and whatnot, but again, not everybody becomes murderous drug dealer. Yeah. So in the, I mean, I know you guys are still shooting and we haven't seen it yet, but in, you, you spoke about it being in Miami, um, does the childhood element, and I mean, obviously she's an adult by that point, does the childhood element of her come up through conversations? Is there like stylistic stuff that you guys do to go back yeah or? we we weave it through okay. we weave it through here and then and make it clear what she wh where she came from and is that early on early on to give context or do you kind of like is it a slow drip it's sort of a slow drip okay yeah I'm really trying to get I know that. I know I'm, <laughs> and I'm sitting in my head going oh my god I'm gonna get in so much trouble. I'm really not I'm just really <laughs> curious um so Maggie for you you talked about you used the word replicate um and I wanted to just go to the sort of like the different variations of um, Kathleen's death in the staircase and obviously watching the documentary like we don't get that to use your term point of view ever because she's already dead and it's all speculation did you know from the very beginning like okay I'm you know Kathleen's a living breathing person in my world so like I'm gonna have to show this or when when did that decision come to sort of I do the it, multiple. Yeah, I mean, I think Antonio Campos, who's the creator and showrunner with me, mm -hmm. he had always envisioned having multiple um, versions of what could have occurred in the staircase. Um, and I think for uh, us, and uh, having written um, scenes that depict violence um, before, it's always about not having something to show, but still having something to say with the scene um, and for us what it was was to show that there was a loss that occurred there no matter wh how that loss happened that something fundamental left that family that night and um, for us what was equally important was the manner in which we decided to shoot it which was we decided to have um, to have longer takes and uh, framing that's more, um, you know, mo more often than not associated with documentary filmmaking, which is a bit objective. Yeah. It's wide. It, it doesn't move that much. We don't go in for close-ups. We don't cut. And it is the idea that we're not going to imbue our own bias upon the action that's unfolding, whether or not there's a lot of action. It's just, it's kind of, we're, we're staying back. But also I think because of that and because it was a decision that was made and is not frequently made during those scenes, it actually to some degree ended up amplifying the emotional connection to what was happening. Um, but again, it was the idea of, of having, these are multiple perspectives. Like the staircase always ended up being the, the same thing it was in each case, mm -hmm. but in each case something dramatically different happened in it. And yet it didn't change what that picture, all those pictures were. So it's just this idea that, again, we are looking at these things and everyone brings something to their perspective of it. And so to not show it would be to miss an opportunity to very much highlight the theme of the show. Yeah, both the loss of her to that family in each case and also... I 
as an audience member, I certainly at the end of every variation still felt horrified and terrible and sad and the emotions never changed for me. Right, exactly. And I mean, that was, uh, for us, a lot of it was that um, until this point, we, we hadn't really fully seen a, a, a realized version of Kathleen. Again, it is a somewhat fictional version. But, you know, I, I think what was significant to us was that while there were, you know, people spoke about her and added, you know, nuance to her story, everyone universally agreed that she was this very, very dynamic woman. And so I think that was our goal, was to hopefully show that, um, not put her on a pedestal, but also, you know, feel that there was a great loss. And regardless of what you think, it was a tragedy at a minimum. Well, let's go to, obviously you had incredible, you know, source material from the documentary, but Kathleen's not a presence in the documentary. So how did you round out, like, where, where did you get sort of your, you know, um, your perspective of that, who she was and, you know, who did you talk to and who did you get that information from? I mean, we, we spoke to a, a, a lot of people. Um, you know, even early on we learned that... Um, one of our uh, one of the uh, gentlemen working in the art department, his father worked with her at Nortel. Um, so it, it's just it's just crazy coincidences like that. Um, but again, I, I don't I don't like want to. But like I imbue all my characters, whether they're real li like with a part of myself, Absolutely. and so do the actors, and so do the other writers in the room. And again it's important for me to for everyone to know that that that's also what's being presented to them in these shows it's it like fictional characters that i write layer, yes exactly right? and so it. for me with kathleen it was like this is a woman she's a mother she's a daughter she's a sister uh she's you know keeping house she is a businesswoman i'm just like she is tired and she is stressed and she wants her life to change because right now it's unsustainable and unfortunately something stopped her from doing that and if anything it's like one of those things that like do it when you can like get it done yeah. um so yeah that was how we kind of created Kathleen well you brought up the actors so I think it's a good time to just maybe talk casting for a little bit um you know just when you are doing a show that is based on reality and real people when you're casting those roles um what is the main thing you're looking for? I mean, obviously it's gotta be some combination of looks and essence, but I would imagine one is more important than the other to you. And maybe just kind of speak to how did you guys land on Sophia being in the show and, um, and, and what was that process like? Yeah, well, Sophia actually came with the show. It was Sophia had wanted to play, being Colombian, had wanted to play Griselda Blanco her whole life as a career. Wow. I mean, as an actress. So she she was the one, I think, that years ago brought it originally to Netflix and had said, I want to do this. And I think then they hooked her up with the Narcos producers and then I came in and whatnot. So she was always, always a part of this. And with what you were saying about the actresses bringing in their own thing, I mean, that's one thing. It's Sofia Vergara, who's a comedic actress. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is, you know, everybody was a little nervous. She herself was a little nervous. And as soon as the camera started rolling, she killed it. Like it was just like, it's a Sofia Vergara you cannot, you've never seen, I can tell you that much. Like it's truly amazing what she's, what she has accomplished. Um, but it was this, it was strangely a challenge in that she's so likable mm -hmm. 
you know, she's just naturally likable that it made our jobs a little bit easier. <laughs> and so you could let, we could let her do these awful things and you're just kind of like, well, it's Sophia Vergara, so, you know, <laughs> you're not gonna lose the audience. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as the, you know, the people around her, for me, it's a gut feeling. It's, it's, and it's a combination of both looks and essence. Um, I love casting. I always, I'm always very heavily involved in casting. Um, just because if you don't have the right actor for the role, you're, you're dead in the water. Um, so for me, it's just, you know, you watch those auditions or you just watch the way somebody even moves. You know, it's, it's just something about what they can do. Um, that tells you whether or not that's the person that you need or not. Well, and it's interesting that, I mean, I didn't know that Sophia had been with the project that yeah. long, and so I'm sure, even though there were nerves for her and maybe you guys, but it feels like, she, obviously, she was super passionate about it Incredibly and knew every so. angle yep. and dynamic of this woman. Yep. And so it just all got funneled all those years with, it, with Griselda. And it's absolutely on screen. That's amazing. It's absolutely on screen. Um, what about you? What about for uh, casting the staircase? There were a, a lot of people in the staircase, so it was yeah. a, it was a, it was a great casting process. Um, it, it was it, again, it wasn't about trying. Who did you start with? We started with Colin. Okay, and um, then built around. Uh, well, I would hesitate to say built around, oh, okay. but it, we did start with the the you know the actor playing Michael Peterson, and so. Um, and then it was Kathleen, um, and then, it, but it also kind of happens concurrently. You know, it's not as though it's like, now we've got that, now we can figure the rest out. I mean, you're thinking about it. Um, and you know, it, it was obviously looking for someone, and w w the good thing with Sophie, is like you kind of know going in that at, at minimum, you're gonna have this incredible, like what it's gonna become, you might not have. But again, I think when you're saying gut, it's like, you can never truly know what the alchemy is going to be, and we were, like, that to me was a bit more of the magic of it, was seeing all of these talented performers come together and, you know, embody characters, but again, not feel like they had to replicate something or m make themselves identical in any way. It was, again, about embodying the characters we had created um, uh, for the show. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it, I mean, thank God for them. <laughs> Everything else was very difficult. They were very easy. <laughs> did you guys, because it was, it's such a it, close-knit family, did, did you guys do any sort of chemistry reads, like, together with people? Or how did, how did, you spoke to the alchemy, like, was there any sort of indication, like, oh, this dynamic is working before you rolled cameras? Uh, yeah, yeah. We had, we, um, Antonio had, like, a couple you know, again, it was COVID, so you were trying to approach everything cautiously. But um, again, COVID still exists. But um, at that moment, it was, you know, real tense. Um, so we would have like, you know, quote unquote, family dinners. And so that was a way to kind of bring people together. Um, because it was important to kind of, because we're jumping into the middle of this, this event, that you felt kind of like that unity between them. Um, and uh, I think having those moments with them where it wasn't necessarily rehearsals or chemistry reads, but everyone just being around each other and kind of absorbing that feeling, um, that helped us and we got that on screen as well. Yeah, there wasn't the pressure of like a title that it seemed like it had a work right. dynamic to it. Right. Um, 
we had spoken a bit before this about details and props and all of the things that go into and you know you spoke about photographs i mean we have obviously visual evidence of these houses and these rooms and these people and their clothes and everything can you guys just kind of both of you guys talk about sort of your relationship with some of your key department heads you know production design wardrobe hair makeup and um kind of how long you guys had to to work on creating these worlds? Uh, I can tell you that Knut Lowe, who's our production designer, I drive him crazy because every set I walk through, I'm like, I want that, I want that, I want that. This show has been a, I'm like a kid in a candy store. When it comes to all the 70s and mid-century stuff, it's oh. amazing. And the clothes, it's just been. Oh, you mean you want it at your house? Oh, I okay, want to Okay, okay. Oh, no, not for up. the show. I mean, I want to <laughs> take it home. <laughs> Good job, and Yes. Oh, yes. And, like, I literally go through and I'm like, did we buy that or is that a rental? <laughs> and if it's a rental, I'm like, damn. Um, it's truly been amazing. And that was part of it for Sophia, too. Once she got into those clothes, like, that was a big, big part of it, choosing those the right dresses and, and what says feminine yet also powerful and, and you know, that was true to the era. Uh, so it's, it's the, our, I can just say that our department heads are amazing, mm -hmm. like, between the, and then, you know, we do have, which has come out in the trades, that she's in some prosthetics that were, you know, that was tricky to get because we didn't want to, you know, she's Sofia Vergara. Like, she's going to be beautiful <laughs> if you put her in a freaking trash bag. So, you know, but we wanted to give put something on her that she feels a little bit transformed. Um, and it was it was great. And it was it took a few tries to get it right. But once we got it right, it was like, OK, there's Griselda. Yeah. And you had tests beforehand. Oh, yeah. And, and got, yeah, all that several stuff. and tweaking here and tweaking there and whatnot. So you're creating 70s Miami. Yes. Is what, what you're creating. What's the lead time on something like that? We ran into, you know, it was it was tough. There was, we talked about shooting in different places. You know, the part of the problem with Miami is that it doesn't look like 70s Miami anymore. So there was thoughts like, are we going to shoot there? And we, we nixed that. There was even talk at one point about going to Panama. Because it was like, oh, well, Panama kind of looks like 70s Miami. Um, but we ultimately ended up staying in, in Los Angeles because thank goodness there were enough locations there that we could really get, strangely, Long Beach looks a lot like 70s Miami, <laughs> so we shot a lot there. Oh, nice. LBC? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the, but it was, it's never enough, let's put it that way. The lead time is never enough. Yeah. Maggie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I. I, I you know, echo everything that was just said. And then I, in addition, I guess, specifically for our show, because we were covering almost two decades of time, we were cross-boarding episodes and shooting the first four at the same time. Um, it meant a lot of communication with our department heads and bikes, and then our department heads being able to communicate that to everyone that worked for them. So if you're shooting on a set that has to look like it's, 2003 but then 2010 and then there's 2017 makeup and so it was a lot about always communicating even to the extent you feel like you're over communicating where are we right now and why are we here where were we before and because of the three timelines it kind of added to that um 
I mean, it was the first time I almost, I've written a memo, <laughs> which was like, am I doing this? <laughs> um, so that, that, yeah, it's, it's really about being very, and knowing exactly what it is in your head, so then you can share that with other people. Um, but yeah, it was, it was full on, and there is never enough time. <laughs> so then what I think I hear you saying is like on the day, every day, there's either you or the director or whoever is sort of saying like, he, he, th this is the timeline we're in, like getting everybody on the same page. There's a lot of walkthroughs every, like it, it, it became very uh, clear that it was a lot about uh, approval processes and walkthroughs of the locations and the sets just every time because you really, because the nature of the story is it actually like there were pieces of evi not evidence but like evidence within our narrative right. of questions we're asking um, that need to be certain places because the way our show works is the past timeline ends where the present timeline begins so it actually works in a circle which means that continuity is very important because <laughs> you're not continually moving forward you're actually getting to the place where you started oh, wow. yeah was there a particular thing um, or that was a, a specific challenge that you can remember being harder than the other? I mean, did you rebuild that staircase? Was it practical? Like, well, I mean, I think actually what's interesting, uh, the answer to that question is the only thing that we replicated exactly or attempted to was the back staircase. Mm -hmm. We were able to get into the Peterson's home and take measurements because the house was actually for sale at the time that we were doing um, prep. So we took measurements and we had three staircases made. One was our green staircase where we could do our stunts. And then one staircase was um, our clean staircase. And then one staircase was the staircase that f featured um, the blood spatter. Um, and those two staircases, we, came up, we interchanged them so that you could move them in and out of the set. Um, replicating something exactly is impossible. And that actually was the most literal example of it because we had all the measurements and yet it never turned out exactly right. Even in, even everyone understanding that that was the goal, there was always some sort of problem. But to me then I was like, that's not a problem. That's actually, this is the point. We cannot replicate anything. The, the so truth just, is not the truth. Exactly, so I was like, wow, we can't even do it with the staircase. So, wow. I mean, yeah, it was it was a learning lesson. Um, but yeah, that was the, cl that was the only thing we were like, because from there we were like, it just gets more and more ambiguous. So if we have that starting point and that reference point, but we ultimately couldn't even achieve that necessarily. I mean, it was very, very close, but never, never identical. Getting very meta today. What about you guys? I think for me, it, w it was the prosthetics, which mm -hmm. I talked about. That was just, it, I mean, making sure that was our biggest priority, was making sure that those were absolutely right and that Sophia felt comfortable in them and you know, it gave her that that sense of Griselda, um, as well as something that she didn't have to be in makeup for six hours a day on. That was, you know, it's another consideration: is that whatever we were doing had to be something that she could get in and out of. I wouldn't say easily, but you know, with with time constraints in mind. Well, yeah, knowing that the camera could be absolutely this close, you know, at any given point, you know. Um, let's talk about um, sort of choosing some of your creative collaborators like your DPs and your directors who are going to take you know this from the page to the screen and really be those you know let your eyes like on the day 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about like who you worked with on the show and and what they brought to the table? Yeah, that was another because I you know came into this a little later. Uh, Andy Baez is our director who was directing all six episodes, so that was a bit of a you know made me nervous initially. It's just like okay, how do we make sure we're on the same page and whatnot? And he was fantastic. He was just everything we, he was talking about. I was like, that's exactly right. Um, I think we really, really gelled to when it came to casting because he would send me, he's like, okay, these are my picks. And I was like, yes, thank God. <laughs> Those are mine too. Um, and he's just been incredible. He's really, he's brought together, you know, you go, you go to set initially and, and, you know, everybody's nervous at first. And I'm like, okay, I have, then this is my note here and this is my note here. And as time has gone on, you know, I've, I've seen with Andy, like, I don't have to, like, I wait, I notice something, I'm like, well, wait a second. The next take, he's already fixed it. Mm -hmm. So he's seen the exact things that I've, and I'm like, oh, this is why I love him. Yeah, he's amazing. And visually, I mean, this show is going to be stunning. That's another thing. Our DP, too, is an absolute genius. So the two of them working together, if nothing else, the show's going to look great. <laughs> that I can tell you. Gonna look really good. Yes. <laughs> um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree. It, it was. Um, I think the the nature. It was Antonio, and then Antonio and myself, and Antonio Campos was supposed to direct all the episodes. But then, because of we were on such a tight timeline, we then had um, Lee Janik come in and direct uh, uh, the fifth and the sixth episodes. Um, so was that tricky bringing someone in who hadn't been there from the beginning? I, I think yes and no. Okay. Um, yes, in the sense that you have to catch somebody up, but that's kind of like nature of tell. You're always catching somebody up <laughs> because it's basically eight movies. So it's like, so I I think it was a great time to bring in a director because it was a new world. In episode five, we're seeing Michael in prison, and we hadn't established that yet. So because of the fact that we were moving so much through time. There was opportunities for someone to come in and and see what we were seeing, because of the nature of the show and it is, to whatever extent you can consider it a mystery. There were certain fundamental things that had to happen in, in a very specific way, and Lee was totally on board with that. And so it enabled us for Antonio to go do his direct the edits and then prep the last two episodes, and then I would just I was the through line, yeah. so I was on set. And so it is just about communication and um, making sure everyone's on the same page because ultimately you're the person that knows ev the entire story and where you need to get to. So if something doesn't happen this way here, it either changes what happens next or makes it more difficult to achieve that. Yeah. Um, so it, we, again, the department heads were incredible and they worked through very ambitious scripts and ambitious schedules with, uh, you know, I was very impressed, and you can see it hopefully in the show. Same here. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask was I, I was on a couple other panels with uh, Silas Howard, who is, was producing director on Dickinson, which is a historical thing and a great show. But he said something that was sort of, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but like, that like, oh, the, the historical details matter, but they didn't matter as much as like the performances and the characters and the, the this and the that in terms of like, what's interesting about what you're seeing when you're there like they're capturing it do you feel like you've kind of like let let the all the prep you've done kind of go and trust that like 
all those details and the you know the realism and the things that people might scrutinize are 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 there and then you kind of just focus on the humans in front of the screen or like talk about that dynamic a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean I would say that's the beauty of having a fantastic production designer who's there and who I mean he's there staring at the monitor looking he's like oh that base needs to move or whatever let's get rid of that having that having someone that you can trust that you know is looking at the details um, is everything. Uh, but you know for us too it, it it the place and the look was incredibly important. Like obviously the performances that's number 1 but because the idea of Miami at this time was a very, very specific place and was going through radical, radical changes. And so, I mean, it's, it's said that drugs, the cocaine trade is what built the skyline of Miami. Like it's crazy. Like it's, everybody was on the take. It was just a really, really crazy time. Um, and that was incredibly important to us to honor that. And we really wanted to make sure that that's part of the, the, the treat that we gave the audience was just to get to see Miami. I mean, it was fun, it was loud, it was boisterous, it was just, it was really crazy and we wanna make sure that, that we get that on screen as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we had our uh, set decorator, Edward McLaughlin, he called it the third layer, which is basically kind of, like I guess the most, you know, an example would be like, does somebody doodle yeah. when they're on the phone? And then that would be there on the desk. Yeah. And so when the actor came, they had all these kind of elements to play with because the set had been already imbued with the character. Um, so I think to a certain extent you do let go, but I think when you want to highlight certain elements of a character, you always know that there are there are props and there are there is um, set deck that you want to highlight because it actually is significant why it's there. And so I think, it, that, again, it's just about communication. And I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's like, can you actually move your performance towards this? Yeah. And, but here is the reason why, yeah. not just do yeah, it. Absolutely. Like, it's like, please, like, this is, there is a reason behind it. And so I think it's both at the same time, but ultimately then you let go and it's just. Yeah. I want to pull out kind of for a minute and, Maggie, you kind of talked about it a little bit about the media and, and all of that. Um, obviously, we've got social media now, and I, that's a thing that we're going to have, I think, <laughs> moving forward. Uh, not going away. Um, how has that, uh, and you can speak to your shows or just the genre in general, but how have you found or seen that that has um, played into people's, you know, people making a choice for themselves about what they think versus people going down a rabbit hole that, you know, maybe, you know, and, and, and informing things and picking things apart. Um, have you, sh you know, I mean, obviously your show isn't out there yet, but I mean, yeah. you could still well, speak I, to. I would also say quickly that we were very lucky that it took place in the 70s and 80s, so we didn't really have to worry about that, thank God, other than the occasional leaked photo of, of, Sophia and her prosthetics on set, um, but yeah, that it was it was. I was happy that we didn't have to deal with that part of social media. I'm not gonna lie. Wow. Um, I think well, just I get, like extrapolating, but like yes. generally speaking, I think social media and the true crime genre kind of go hand in hand in the sense that uh, it, there's a lot of speculation, and social media is a 
is a, a way to create a discourse. And so that speculation is kind of inherent to what social media kind of fosters. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I, I do believe that the fact that, that while there is an intimacy within these discussions, the physical distance that people aren't in the same room together does mean that the discourse can then take on a somewhat more adversarial approach and that's kind of where the danger lies is um, the fact that the, the discourse isn't like, oh, isn't the celebration of conversation but rather about encouraging uh, black and white thinking, right and wrong, innocence and guilt and that that's, I, I think in, in an ideal world, we can kind of move past that part of it as we learn more about how to use this in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I'm just too optimistic. <laughs> I will say, I do find it fascinating now, though, that, and I think through social media, that you have fans, who fans of true crime, who get together and go out and try and solve these yeah, that's unsolved a huge murders. Thing. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's... Only Murders in the Building exactly. is a great show that's exactly. just about that, and, and yeah. so entertaining to watch. Yeah. Because you're like, they're doing it. Exactly, exactly. I guess I want to I guess I want to focus on that just a little bit more, you know, like the fascination with true crime. Can you guys think back? I mean, now I I have I have a list. I, I won't rattle it off, but I had a friend of mine make a list of all the adaptations and it's just a mile long at this point. Um and obviously the advent of of uh, the popularity of podcasting kind of helped podcast to then show kind of became a thing. Um, but can you guys think back uh, to in your memory, or and maybe the audience can help us out with this, of like where where did the kind of explosion take off? Because it seems like recently it's just been you know every TV cycle there's a new thing. For me, I think it was Serial. Like that's what I remember yeah. is Serial that just became this. Oh my God, have you seen? Have you listened to Serial? Have you listened to Serial? And it was just like people went sort of nuts, um, as far as I remember. I mean, I, I remember also, the, there's always been the old school, like we're talking about First 48, a lot of these, you know, cops. Dateline, like 60 OG, Minutes. OG, like yeah, all yeah. that stuff. But there was never this sort of frenetic, like, obsession with true crime the way, the way that it came after Serial. That's kind of my memory, but I, yeah. I didn't know if I was misremembering something. Um, what do you think those long-running shows like a Dateline that's been around for 20-plus seasons or whatnot or the 60 Minutes, um, what do you think that uh, has, has brought to the narrative, uh, the narrative element of now exploring true crime? Um, I'm not sure. It's a good question, but I, I feel like for me... Those always did feel a little bit more objective mm -hmm. as... Both objective and well, I think what's striving towards objectivity. Yeah, it's almost it's like, like hiding high behind the illusion of objectivity, yes. which is we can solve this. Exactly. And it's almost like, well, what is this? And for me, it was always a bit superficial. Like yeah. it was like it didn't get deep enough. Um, and I, I think it's I, I think sometimes it's easy. Um, Agree. It's and I and I'm I'm being self-critical. It's easy to watch. Like I'll have it on in the background, and but this is somebody's tragedy, yeah. and yet, and so I, I think there's some sort of disconnect there that I making think lasagna that I think in going into the true crime and making a narrative about it, 
it actually then it, it allows us to be like, there is more to it. Like, let us get to a backstory yes. of a character. And let I us think that's what Serial did. Exactly right. That it was yeah. always this sort of like surfacey. And I think about what's his name's narrative. The, 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 the narration that you have that sort of talking like about the crime. Oh, 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 it, the, the Keith Morrison. Yeah, the Keith Morrison. Found murdered. I mean, it's... Um, but you're right that they were never really like there was little things. It's like oh, someone was a cheerleader or whatever, you know, something to try and make you feel bad for the for the victim. But it was it was very very superficial. Um, but like as that the is, container was just like what an an, an they rarely yeah. did like a two part. Yeah, like if it was a two parter, it was a big deal. They're these these small containers. Yeah, but these it's massive stories. Yeah, but it's true, and that's why it made it easily digestible is because it was just sort of surfacey and. You weren't really thinking about what the tragedy was of the of of the episode. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions here, but my final question to you guys is: Is there a um, you may need a palate cleanser after these projects? But is there another story, or like Sophia's been fascinated with Griselda? Is there a something that's kind of always been interesting to you that you're you may want to explore in the future? A case, a person, a anything like that. Truth a crime. Me, it actually was Griselda. We okay. used to talk about Griselda Blanco in the Justified Writers Room all the time. I think one of our writers was was circling a Cocaine Cowboys um, project at the time, and she always stuck with me. That I was like, how the fuck did a woman navigate that world? And is there anything visual that has been done on her, or is this kind of the first? Yeah, there was a, I think Lifetime did a movie with her, with okay. Captain Zeta-Jones. There's okay. been a couple things here and there, but um, not a limited series. Sure. So the fact that we were able to dig into the deeper stuff. But it always made me wonder, you know, I, I was the only, I'll say this much, I think it was also because I related to her, you know, in the Justified Room. I love those guys, they're like my family, but there was a season I was the only female in that writer's room. I think there was a period of a few months where I was literally the only woman in the building um, until our script supervisor started. So I think that's part of what, I've often been that, the woman in the man's world mm -hmm. that, and I sort of was sort of drawn to, to what Griselda, what that must have been like um, for her and what she had to, what she had to go through and, and to accomplish what she did. What about you? Um, yeah, no, there's a couple projects, but I think they're more, they're less, um, event orient or they're more, less about one person and about, uh, bigger malfeasance, <laughs> larger <laughs> political malfeasance. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so. you, you worked on cr American Crime Story previous to this, so that's. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So, but yeah. Well, I want to give you guys a chance to ask questions about the genre or the shows or anything like that. Yes. Kelly. Um, I mean, I have a thousand. Uh, this is like the one panel I've been waiting for all weekend because <laughs> I'm such a true crime buff, but I also work in the space as well and I'm creating, like you were saying, there's people going out and, you know, solving these crimes and yeah. creating a tool for them to do that more easily, oh. but also as like a research tool for creators as well. And the thing I wanted to ask you about is you talked a lot about the sensitivity, obviously, that you have to pay the family and um, I wanted to see I've been kind of challenged with navigating uh, people who are against true crime being a genre mm -hmm. and who are critical about monetizing the worst thing that has happened in a person's life and I'm just curious I know this 
kind of like throwing that at you. But is that something that you know you had to think about in creating these shows or in the work that you've done, and how you navigated that? If you could give me any advice, <laughs> sadly, I didn't have to navigate. We didn't have to navigate so much. Um, I think it's because things about Griselda had already been done that it was sort of in the ether of that. I mean, and I think there was Jennifer Lopez was going to be doing a movie about her and whatnot. So. Nobody really came at us, I have to say. Sorry. <laughs> I think, I mean, it, there is no good answer is actually what it comes down to. Um, I think, uh, you know, in approaching the genre and saying, um, you know, is it something that we should be, you know, using or um, exploiting is the most pejorative way of saying it. But, um, I mean, I think you can probably question everything we do from that lens. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just about about being sensitive um, and kind of, I, I think, just, you know, having, having the difficult conversations and not shying away from them and hoping that the final product reflects that. And giving, I mean, giving the people who are left over a voice, you know, and being able to dig into those those details that get lost in the press. Um, that would be my argument for it. You know, I understand mon monetization of it is, you can't escape that. Like, if you want people to see it, it's it's just impossible. You can't, if you want it made, you need money for it. Yeah. Um, so it's either that, it's like, okay, fine, then this thing is lives in obs obscurity and these people are never really allowed to tell their stories, or you monetize it and you you give them a voice. So my bias is that it's critically, critically important that you do this because I think we don't have investigative journalism nearly as much as anywhere we do. Mm. And so I think that's why you see a visceral drive down as people are doing these things in 60 Minutes more. So how, um, as far as ownership of the story, are there any other true crime projects where you really have um, the actual victims also, almost like the American I mean, it's not the term, but they're really owning the story and being that voice to drive through that, that create a, a true crime product. So you don't, so you're, you know, you have them sort of giving the borderline to the reality. Are, are you talking about having people uh, like life right consent or something? Is yeah, that, is, or, right. I, I think that does happen. Um, and it's not rare. Um, but I, if you, it's almost like if you think about, like sheet music <laughs> and then you have all of you get it and then you play your instruments and then you have one conductor but then it's a recorded it, it, the, there's always degrees that you're removing yourself from reality yeah. so even when they are in the room anyone's in the room you again it's just like it it it, it will never be that thing yeah. and so the itch might exist and you can scratch it but it might be unsated um that isn't to say to strive towards that or to say that it isn't worthwhile, but the what you accomplish might not be the thing that you thought it was well, going to be. Well, and, and recognizing too that everyone's got their own agenda. Like even, and giving those voices, it's like, you know, who is somebody trying to protect? Who is somebody trying to throw under the bus? It's, it's hard to weed through, you know, what people are actually telling you. Uh, th thank you guys, we ha I am getting this time. We do have to wrap up. Uh, please thank these incredible thank women.
You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.